0: I'm going to read uh, from Mark's uh, gospel. We've been studying that for the past few weeks uh, since the beginning of the year. And we're just going to read the first 12 verses about a man whose hand was withered and Jesus uh, healed him. So hear the word of the Lord as I read. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he had healed him on the Sabbath. "...so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored." The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Eduma or Dume and beyond uh, the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and told his disciples to have a boat ready uh, for him, because the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. One of the things that Mark is doing... Mark was not there for this healing. But he got all the information about what happened in that synagogue... ...and what happened to this man and the interaction Jesus had... ...with the crowds and with the Pharisees from Peter. uh, Peter the Apostle, because Peter was an eyewitness. and, And Peter is the mentor of John Mark. And Mark writes it down and that's why I think you see so much of these two words and and immediately all through there you can almost hear mark as he's hearing these stories get so excited about the things that jesus said and the things that jesus did and so he's writing them down and and as we're reading them and and he's put this word chi and and he's put this other word immediately to to make us a feel that this is a movement and it's happening rapidly. He's uh, compressing three years of teaching and ministry into these 16 uh, chapters of for us. And so we read that. And last week we said what, what Mark was doing was answering two fundamental questions that everyone asked. Can I be forgiven? And if I can, who can? Who can forgive me for what I've done? and the answer to that question those two questions is yes you can be forgiven and jesus can forgive sins and so this week we're going to turn that a little bit and ask the question then who is jesus that is the real jesus not not the ones that we've kind of made up or the ones that we've been taught but the ones that the scriptures reveal and specifically this chapter reveals about jesus because it elicits a response A number of years ago, I was asked to be on a panel around Easter in a town, and they had pastors from other churches, and we were to answer one question, who's the real Jesus? And one pastor told the crowd that had gathered that Jesus was a tremendous teacher. He was a great teacher in the ancient world, like Plato and Aristotle and those uh, men of old. And he said, if you, if you read the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, or or all those great parables, Jesus had a lot of good things for us to learn. Another pastor said, No, 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 he's not just a teacher. He was a great example. When you look at the life of Jesus, when he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, it was an example for us to serve. And the way he treated and loved on widows and orphans and the poor, that's what we are to do. And so we're to emulate Jesus. And so when it got to be my turn, I, I said, well, yes, Jesus is a great teacher, but Jesus didn't come to teach. And yes, Jesus is a great example, but he didn't come to be an example. Jesus came to be our substitute. There's something profoundly wrong with the human race and that Jesus came to heal that because we can't. He came to receive what we deserved and to give us what we had not earned. You see, if you ever meet the real Jesus, he elicits only one of two responses if it's the real Jesus if it's the real Jesus that you meet or you encounter, he either elicits in you some tension and maybe that tension results in some opposition to some of the things he says and does. Or even this idea that he's your substitute. Or he becomes attractive to you because he holds out hope in forgiveness and freedom from your sins. He's one out of the two, and I have never met anybody who met the real Jesus, who encountered the real Jesus and remained neutral. Because the real Jesus elicits only two responses opposition and attraction. And we see that in our text today. We see it in these, these two paragraphs of our text. The first uh, seven verses, and I mean the first six verses, and then the last seven. And so let's look at that first, the opposition to Jesus. The context here is worship. You see that in verse 1, they've, they've entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. I just want you to understand, the only day this man feels whole, the only day his withered hand doesn't matter, is the Sabbath and in worship. Worship. Because in worship, he doesn't need both his hands. But when sundown comes and work begins, he has to work with only one hand. And in the ancient world, if you could not work with both your hands, if there was something deformed, if something was wrong with you, you typically sat on a corner and you begged people to give you money and that's how you made a living. You showed them the deformity to elicit their pity. And the money that came in is what you and your family lived on except for one day a week. Worship. The only day his deformity didn't matter. In fact, he probably didn't like to hear that Jesus' disciples had a picked grain on the Sabbath. He would have been one of the few that said, no, 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 we need to keep the Sabbath holy. We need to keep it holy because it's the only day my deformity doesn't matter. It's the only day that my hand doesn't draw attention because I can lift one hand high and that's enough. But Jesus sees the man with the withering hand and he says, come here. And he asked this incredible question of everybody who's listening, particularly the Pharisees, the religious leaders in particular, and he says, is, is, it, is it okay to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Is it okay to save a life or to kill? And they remained silent because they want to end their, that debate because... The question is, is it okay to heal this man? He's been healing people all the way up till now and he's about to heal him and they want to see him do it on the Sabbath because it's forbidden. And you think, how's that possible? Well, let me read from the King's Cross, which is Tim Keller's um, a commentary on this passage. He said, there are 39 types of activity you could not do on the Sabbath, including reaping gain. Grain, which the, the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of doing. One of the things they would allow you to do on the Sabbath is deeds of mercy and deeds of necessity. That is, if your ox fell into the ditch, you could get him out. If, if your grandmother fell down, you can help her up. But if it's a healing, it, unless it's life-threatening, you have to wait till sundown because sabbath in the ancient world went from sundown to sundown and so if he could just wait just a few more hours it would be okay for to heal this man but jesus wants to show something more important than simply that the sabbath was made so that we had to keep it he wanted to show that jesus is the lord of the sabbath he wanted to show that the sabbath was created for man to find rest in him and in order to do that, he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath was not uh, made for man, but man, I mean, ma- uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. It was a place where we we're supposed to rest. It is places where we find our healing or long for our healing. So Tim Keller in that same book goes a little further and he says the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It is about replenishing the drained. It is about repairing the broken. The Pharisees' response here is a classic example of missing the forest for the trees. Their hearts are as shriveled as this man's hand. They are insecure and anxious about the regulations. They are tribal, judgmental, and self-obsessed. Instead of caring about this man, what should they have been doing? Praying for his healing on the Sabbath of all days. Well, why do they not get it? Why, why, do they, why do they get so upset because he heals the man? Because that's the, that's the thing he does in, in, in verse 5 is he calls him over and stretches out his hand and it says his hand is restored on the Sabbath. Why do they miss it? It's because they have such poor theology. Bad theology is the taskmaster. And the bad theology here is that the Sabbath, that man was created for the Sabbath, that our whole purpose in life is to keep it Holy. And never do things like this. When in reality the Sabbath was given to man. To rehearse the gospel. To rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. To say that I am forgiven and whole. In Christ. That's why the Sabbath was created. For us to rest one out of seven. I told you that there are there are two dances that man dances one dance we saw was of the Christian and that dance is to repent believe in the gospel and follow but there's another dance of performance where you go to bed every night and you say did I do enough today did I do enough today and to wake up every morning and ask the question, how do I make up for yesterday? That's a dance as well. That most of us, that's the music we hear. Rather than repent, believe, and follow. Well, as I told you, He heals the man and He does it on the Sabbath because He's the Lord of the Sabbath, we learned in the last chapter, verse 28. So the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And it says in verse 6, immediately the Pharisees run out and they try to find somebody who will agree with them. Isn't that like us? We're in a controversy and maybe we're not winning the argument or maybe we are winning the argument. The first thing we do is go to find other people who agree with us. That's so what they do. They run out of the synagogue, and they run out into the, into the court, and they run out into the streets, and who's out there but the non-religious people, because if you were religious, you would have been in the synagogue already and known what happened, and so they go outside where the non-religious people are on the street, the hated unclean people on the street, the Herodians. The Herodians, just so you know, are the non-religious Jews who have decided to embrace the Roman Empire specifically the Greek culture that they bring, and also this idea of supporting uh, the governor that represents Rome. His name was Herod, and he has a son named Herod, and he has a grandson named Herod. So it's easy to remember the three Herods. And they're called Herodians because they are Jews who collaborate with the awful empire. Doesn't that sound familiar? And so here they are and they collaborate together and they prove a truism that we talk about. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You see, the Herodians and the Pharisees would have been at each other's throat about anything except for Jesus. Jesus has united that which would normally never be together. We tend to think it's the Gentiles and the Jews. No, no, no. It's the Herodians who are irreligious, who hate the religion of the Jews, and those who love Yahweh have united together because of their hatred of Jesus. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Tertullian, who's a second century theologian, that means around 180. He's known for a number of things. One of the things he's he's known for is, he looked at the Bible and he said, the Bible teaches about one God, but three persons. And he gave it the name Trinity. You see, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, but he coined the phrase, the name, and and said, yes, God is one uh, one being, but three persons. Equal. But he's also known for this statement. He says, the gospel is always being crucified between two thieves. One thief says, I don't need a substitute because I have my own righteousness to commend. It's almost like that, that performance. I, I know I do bad things, but I try to make up for it with my good deeds. And I've got enough good deeds, these are the Pharisees. I've got enough good things in my life that no matter when I fail, I've got more good than bad, and so I have enough. I don't need Jesus. I don't need a substitute because I'm good enough on my own. The other thief of the gospel is more like the Herodians. They would say, I don't need a substitute because there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a sinner. I don't sin. And because of that, they are as far from Jesus as can be. And one is very religious and the other one is not. One is, we would say, is really following after God. They would be in church. And the other one would do anything on Sunday but avoid going to church. And yet both of them are far from Jesus. And yet they have bound together here against Jesus. And before you say that the gospel is not for them, this is who Jesus came for. Not just the outsiders, the outcasts, the poor, but also for the insider, the the people who were are in government and in influence and people of wealth and power and people who are religious, the gospel is for them too because our examples, the one great example in the scriptures is of Saul. Saul who persecuted the church, who says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees and becomes a follower of Jesus. And his name is now Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament. And then you think of the irreligious people, people who, are, who, who have denied that they're even sinners. That you'd think of C.S. Lewis. And all of his great writings would have never happened if that atheistic academician hadn't met and, and come to faith through his friends. So before we, we jettison the Pharisees as the bad guys, they're always typecast, Whenever there's a movie, the Pharisees are always the bad guys. The Rodians are always the bad guys. And when reality is, we all need the substitute. Everyone needs the substitute. And so beginning in verse 7, it turns from these objectors, these, this opposition to people who actually are following him. You see that in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from everywhere. If you, if you put these cities on a map, you would see it's all over Palestine and beyond Palestine have begun to hear of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles. And so they've, they've crowded in and it says they, they've come to hear him. They've and they're so crowded in. They, he says, let's get a boat in case my teaching I, I, I calls such a crowd that they crush us. We need a way to get away. They've got us hemmed in here. And so not only do they come from many places, many of them are suffering. It says that he... They came with many diseases and He healed them and and more came. And the fear was that they wanted to touch Him and it was going to crush them. Including this guy who had an unclean spirit who said, You are the Son of God. That's just one of the diseases of the people who were coming to Him. And I think one of the things that teaches us is who is attracted to Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Who are the types of people that are most attracted to Jesus. Yes, we could talk about the rich person in power. We could talk about uh, the the highly educated person who comes to Christ. There there are lots and lots of those people, but they're the exception who are attracted to Jesus. The masses, the crowds that come to Jesus are, are primarily poor and uneducated. They're moral and social outcasts. They're the outsiders, the least of these. The widows, the orphans, they come to hear Jesus. The suffering, the weak have come to Jesus. In fact, there's a great... The great passage in Luke, a parallel passage where uh, Jesus gives three parables. He gives a parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost son, what we often call the prodigal son. What we forget about those three parables is that there's an implied question in verse one that he's answering with those three parables. Back in verse one of chapter 15 of Luke, the implied question is, "Why do you, Rabbi?" eat with tax collectors and sinners why do you eat with all these people why do you do the most intimate thing two people who are not married can do and you are a holy man the implied question is not why why do you spend so much time with these people the implied question is why don't you spend time with us why don't you hang out with the movers and shakers why aren't you with us why are you with them? You remember what Jesus' answer is through those parables? The rebuke is you should have been. You should have been the woman who looked all day for that lost coin. You should have been that farmer who was looking for his lost sheep. You should have been the elder brother who's worried about losing some of his inheritance out there looking for your younger brother, the prodigal son, who has wandered off. You should have been doing what I am doing because I came to seek and save those who are lost, not those who think they're found. I came for the sick. It is not the well who need the physician, but those who are dying. You see, our problem... Our problem isn't that we sin. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we're sinners. Our problem is that that our status needs to be changed. We need a substitute who will take our place and we take His. Our status has to change. We can't be sinners and get into the kingdom of God. Only those who have been declared righteous because of someone else's righteousness. And we receive that by faith. You see, that's what he's saying. Do you believe in that gospel of why Jesus came? To go to a physician when you have a headache and say, just give me some aspirin, when in reality you've got a brain tumor that's killing you. You see, to go in and stop sin is like asking for the aspirin. It's just a symptom of the problem. The problem is that we're sinners that produce sin. John Calvin calls us idol factories. That's our problem. And so we need someone to make us new. So let me ask you this question. If it's true... That Jesus attracted tax collectors, outcasts, the suffering, the weak, the broken, orphans, widows, prostitutes, you name it. We, the church, which is the body of Christ, do we attract the same people? Does EP attract the same people that Jesus attracted? And if not, why not? If all we do is attract people who are good and well and think that they're not sick, then we've got a problem. Because we're not attracting the very people that are attracted to Jesus. You and I will never get over who came. We can't. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God who came to be our... Substitute, and when you begin to think of who you were before you came to Him and who you are apart from Him, I mean, I'm I'm amazed every day that I begin to think about this this poor guy who grew up in a poor home, a dysfunctional home, a broken home, a highly uneducated home, that somehow he gets every every Sunday an opportunity to talk to you, his church that's amazing, It's because of the Savior coming for me. Maybe he's doing that for you today. Maybe he's calling you today. And you think, well, I've got plenty of days left. I'm pretty young. He, Bruce must be talking to the old. That's what Kobe Bryant thought, to be honest. Sometimes we forget that on that helicopter there were three 13-year-old girls. Everybody thinks they've got more time. But you don't know how much time you've got. In fact, only God knows. This is not something you wait to get settled. Because I can't promise you even 41 years as Kobe got. And so this is what you want to settle of all days. Do you believe that you needed a substitute that made you new? If you're trusting in Him, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you still trusting in yourself? Are you still dancing the dance that every night you ask, have I done enough today? Are you still dancing the dance when you wake up every morning and you ask the question, I need to make up for yesterday. It was a bad day. If you're still dancing that dance, it's because you haven't yet trusted in Jesus. And that's what we offer today. Do you know that? Presbyterians, hear me now. Jesus is here. I know we think he's not, or we don't expect him, but he's here. And he's offering for you himself. Will you take him? Will you take him before it is too late? Before you run out of days? And it doesn't matter whether you're 13 or 41 or 88. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper. And I'll ask you, if if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's another picture of what he's done for you. If not then you just ask him and he'll come into your life. The spirit will come and give you new life because you see him as your substitute. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, the grace of the gospel that has changed us, brought us to you, encouraged us, that we have met the real Jesus who's worried more about a withering hand in worship than he is about the hundreds that are pressing in because he came to heal us. He came to make that which is broken, that which is crooked straight. And so, Father, we thank you that Jesus has come here to be with us. He's shown himself to us and he continues to show himself to us in this table. And so I pray that you might meet us here and meet everyone in the room, whether they are skeptics far from you or they've been very faithful to church, but ultimately they have never met you. Reveal yourself through your spirit to them today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.